one may think that the opposite of sorcery magic is the so-called miracles performed by so-called holy clerics. However, you would be wrong. In reality, these so-called miracles are just another form of sorcery, merely drawing upon different intentions to use than my own. End of the day, this so-called divine miracle magic comes from oneself, comes from inside, comes from training, years of training, study, and hard work to understand the way in which this latent power dwells inside of nearly everyone. The druids, on the other hand, are different. Their magic is older, more primal, and does not come from within. It does not come from years of study. Instead, it is granted through ritual, through, I hesitate to say, divine inspiration because we do not know or rather there is no hard proof that gods exist perhaps there is some powerful entity forgotten to the rest of the world that gives these druids their power i for one do not know i for one have not been granted this power I had to come by my power through years of hard work and dedication, of studying the ancient tomes left behind by sorcerers before me. The hulking, bear-like Bjorn took me through the wild, twisting, root-like paths traveled by the druids. Unlike my own teleportation abilities, which is simply a snap of your fingers and you arrive, Druidic teleportation feels like being crushed down to the size of an ant and then hurtled along a twisting, wild, interconnected network of the largest tree you could ever imagine. Being squished and stretched and thrown wildly around corners, we emerged somewhere different than where we started. Another circle of stones, another restraint on my own power. Roughly bound, gagged, and blindfolded, I was briskly led by a rope tied around my neck up what felt like an endless series of stairs leading further up and up and up. At first, it made no sense to me. Were we climbing some kind of mountain? But then, using the only sense left to me, that of my ears, I heard the rustling of leaves, the twittering of birds, and most of all, the strong smell of wet decay. At last, my captor stopped dragging me along, and with a swift kick to the back of my legs, my knees buckled, and I creakily fell down to them prostrate on the ground. Unceremoniously, the blindfold was ripped from my eyes, and seated before me, on top a massive pile of stacked stones resembling the ancient cairns dotted throughout the northern kingdoms, sat a twisted old crone, an elderly woman whose age was beyond telling. And very noticeably, she was missing an eye, the socket of which surrounded by ancient deep scars. This twisted old crone casted a glower look over me with her one good eye. In the empty socket of the other, not covered, not hidden at all by the twisting snake-like writhing of her hair, felt like a void, a void of emptiness, a void that would suck out my soul 
if I even had one left anymore. Long moments passed in silence. The old crone did not speak, but then I simply knew. I knew my life was sacrifice. I knew that I was well and truly fucked at this point. My magics were completely sealed from me. I was bound and forced to my knees in front of this crooked old crone. Scores of powerful druids and animals sat surrounding us in a circle. In a circle of towering trees. Using the magic of their stone circles, Bjorn had transported us across the world. While its location is a close secret of the circle, Clearly this was their mystical grove, the mythical heart of all juridic power in the world. With no words yet spoken and a gag in my mouth, I was completely at the mercy of the old crone. Bjorn stood behind me, hand on my shoulder, his hand shaking in anticipation, no doubt expecting, no, desiring the order from the old crone for him to take my head with his massive, two-handed sword that lay across his back. Time stood still in the towering grove, the wretched old crone on top of her pile of stones, eyeing me, prying through me with that horrifically scarred, empty socket. Perhaps moments or perhaps days passed. I still do not know to this day. And without so much as a word, I understood what I must do. This twisted old crone needed a name, the true name of a demon. A demon, smarter than most, less prone to self-destructive acts of violence, and more insidious and twisting, had been gnawing at the grove for centuries, corrupting the surrounding forest and twisting it to suit its own demonic liking. This powerful demon, this demon of corruption, had twisted many of the circle, and only a handful remained of what was once a full circle. Much to my chagrin, Bjorn reached down, grasping a hold of my ancient tome, the tome of knowledge that has led me so far, and with a twisted smile, he tossed the book roughly towards the crone, towards her feet. With my start of surprise and a look of pure terror and desperation crossing my face, the crone knew she had all the leverage she needed against me. Trying to keep thoughts of murdering this whole grove, of burning this forest to the ground out of my head, I agreed to their terms and set out upon my task to learn the true name of this demon, as it is foretold by the Five of Clubs. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome back to One Guy, One Roll, the solo role-playing podcast where I, your host, player, and GM Hero Cities, play role-playing games for your listening pleasure. Although Spooktober has come to a close, I've enjoyed the recording and playing of Lichdom so much that I decided I really wanted to finish this series even though we are no longer within the spookiest of all the months. We had left off with our sorcerer Varak, not yet known as Varak the Imperishable, having been captured by a member of the Circle, a druidic faction whose magic works fundamentally differently than our own sorceries. 
the hulking man named Bjorn who captured us, led us through a magic portal into a grove of towering trees. The grove is the heart of juridic power, and we were led before an old one-eyed crone. This crone seems to be the leader of the juridic faction, and has issued us a task, a task to find the true name of a demon, a task which we must complete in order to reclaim our ancient tome of knowledge which she is currently holding hostage. I don't know if we're going to be able to finish Lichdom this episode. It's one of those games which is reliant upon drawing from a deck of cards to tell a story. So if we don't draw any aces, which are called truths, we cannot even attempt, let alone successfully conclude, the lichdom ritual. So far, we have no aces, we have no companions, we really don't have anything positively going our way. However, our fate is up to a deck of cards, therefore anything could happen. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the One Guy, One Roll podcast. And without further ado, let's get into it. With little guidance to go on, besides my new task to discover the true name of a demon, and without my all-powerful tome guiding me along my necromantic path, I was once again blindfolded, bound, gagged, and led roughly to the edge of the grove by the ever-tender Bjorn, who unceremoniously undid my bindings, cut off the blindfold, and disappeared back into the towering trees. One day I will have my revenge on that man. I will flay the flesh from his bones and use those bones to construct a servant for me. A servant that will do whatever I want, bound to my will, and his soul will rot, trapped by necromantic powers in eternal agony. However, this is not the story of Bjorn's eternal agony. This is the story of how I discovered the true name of a powerful demon, a demon of corruption, the most insidious of their ilk. No longer was I in the frozen fjordlands of the north, but far to the west, nearly beyond the reaches of the two old empires who had their power to the north and the southeast. This wild land, once covered in towering, magnificent forest, has been twisted and corrupted. The people driven to insanity, the corrupted will of the demon exerting itself over this land. While not outright dangerous like the red wastes, or as desolate and empty as the fjordlands, the small isolated communities, once perhaps united in common goal, now struggle and squabble with each other over the pettiest of slights, building walls and small baileys atop hills. Desolate, burnt-out ruins and twisted, gnarled, evil trees infested with ravenous wildlife round out the twisted influence of this demon of corruption. Never a place of reason and scholarship. I knew I would be hard-pressed to find the true name of the demon through my more traditional means of research and delving into ancient libraries and dusty tomes. Over the next year, I ingratiated myself with one of these petty settlements, its twisted ruler having been rumored to have lived over a hundred years, yet had not been seen in a decade. 
clandestinely using my sorceries and ingratiating myself with the rat-like woodsmen he called his guards. I gained entrance into the small bailey he called his castle. Under the guise of a wandering doctor, I was admitted into the crumbling, musty, death-scented great hall and brought before the withering husk of an old man, seemingly dancing on the end of puppet strings as he talked and moved. Upon further examination and inquiry into his condition, the man lashed out at me and called his guards down upon me. Bereft of my tome of necromancy, I was forced to fall back upon more mundane sorceries, calling forth an enveloping fog of madness. The rat-like men fell upon each other in confusion, butchering themselves and leaving the old man all to myself. Having not been seen by common outsiders for years, I was left to my interrogations, left to my prying through the man's head. Deep within lay a seed that I needed, scooping out the knowledge left the man broken, left the man a drooling, gibbering fool. However, I uncovered the name of the demon. I uncovered what I needed to regain my ancient tome of necromantic knowledge. Unfortunately, this seed implanted within the man's brain was not a one-way street. The demon also learned my name. It learned my name was the withered old crone who sat within the grove. Because I prepared myself, shielding my mind as I connected with the seed. In the hubris so innate to its kind, the corruption demon bought it. However, upon returning to the grove and the withered old crone, I was merely met by Bjorn at the border. Sharing little words, I imparted the true name of the demon, and with his eyes rolled back into his head, in some form of weird connection to the old crone, I snatched my book from him and absconded into the night. The gloomy and dreary nature of these corrupted western woodlands fit my research well. With little trade and little connection to the outside world, these insular communities made a perfect place to conduct my experiments. However, the circle must have been successful with their endeavors against the demon, for as the year came to a close, things brightened up ever so slightly within the dark woods. Homes, once dark and gloomy in the night, were lit up with candle, and a great celebration to him was planned in the village I took residence in. A ceremony I missed being announced, so deep in study into the tome I was. However, word of my esoteric nature had clearly spread along with the coming of the representatives of him. For in the dark, dank, bug-infested root cellar I lived in, as if inspired by the aid of diamonds, on the eve of the celebration of him, a small band of junior Templars battered down the moss-eaten, worm-ridden doors of my cellar and declared their intent to see me burnt in the holy fires of him. This small band of Templars, clearly sent by my ever-so-holy brother, are certainly one of many sent out into the world to track down any rumors that might lead back to me. 
by this point, having had time to pilfer the numerous open graves of this corrupted countryside, I had a small force of mindless, rotting servants at my command, servants who had been digging, digging more tunnels through the worm-infested soil, servants who threw themselves willingly, well, shambled willingly towards these invaders, junior Templars from the looks of it, Templars untested against the fury of those that once died. These mindless, rotting corpses, their fingers ground down to the bone by endless digging, managed to take down a couple of these young Templars, dragging them down to the final grave with them. The screams of these young men, echoing like the most beautiful orchestra, alerted me, waking me up from my intensely focused studying of the tome. Their plan had been to sneak in. Their plan had been to stab me while I slept in the dark of night. However, these foolish young Templars would know only pain as I literally ripped the life out of their bodies, funneling it into the corpses of their own dead friends, bringing them back to life, replenishing my ever-growing number of undead servants. That was a adversary we drew, which is a 7 to a 9. And being an 8, that was also the difficulty we had to roll. We rolled an 8, equaling the number, therefore, successful, which allows us to increase our resolve by 1, bringing us back up to 3 out of 3, since we already had a doom and our resolve has already been lowered permanently by 1. And just as a reminder, if our resolve ever gets to 0, it's an instant game over. These young Templars who invaded my domain are now living out their unlife as my own personal bodyguards, their armor and the faceplate on their helms masking somewhat their rotting flesh beneath in the dark, corrupted western woodlands. Summer is merely a suggestion more than a reality. And during the following summer, while out amongst the slightly less dark and slightly less twisted trees, gathering various ingredients from the local flora and fauna, I stumbled across an old, musty, and crumbling amphitheater that must have once in ages long ago, belonged to some settlement or town from one of the two empires. Within this crumbling amphitheater, a strange sight lay before me. The ghostly echoes of a long, dead play. Merely nothing more than a suggestion on the wind, the haunting and echoing lines from a long-forgotten tragedy. A tragedy of sacrifice. A tragedy of ritual murder. An echo from one of the long, dead, and forgotten gods, perhaps. Either way, there was power here. There was purpose. And I decided that it was time to bring this long-forgotten, long-buried tragedy to life. It was quite simple, actually. The long-loved and often-repeated trope of tragedies. Two young lovers, both virgins, who on the night that they will finally consummate their relationship are found by their fellow family members, poisoned by the other lover. Then the tragedy deepens. 
as these two families must enact a blood feud between one another, leading two senseless deaths into many, many more, destroying the two families in the process. Normally, I wouldn't concern myself with something as petty as this. However, I could feel the latent power at this long-forgotten amphitheater. I could feel the power of a ritual almost completed, almost released. These echoes of the past aching with some dark energy. Some sort of almost completed ritual. The result of which I did not know at the time. Suffice to say, finding two young virgin lovers in a fading and corrupted settlement is not easy. Therefore, I had to manufacture one. Brewing potions and slipping herbs into drinks, I found the two young lovers I needed, and on the night they would consummate their love. I couldn't quite poison them, it just didn't work out. Instead, I strangled the girl and stabbed the boy in the guts, the knife of which was in her hands. And sure as sure, the insidious, oppressive, dour nature of this land gently pushed the two families, along with my advice, into an all-out blood feud. Of course, I did the first murder, framing one of the families against the other, and from there there was no turning back. The pathetic so-called nobility of this settlement could do nothing to slow the tide of blood flowing from a beloved blacksmithing family and that of the innkeeper. For the glorious, bloody conclusion, I brought the still oozing corpse of the girl's father to the amphitheater, dedicating all these murders by my hand to whatever dark energy infested this place. And as a result... Twin serpents came out of the horrified mouth of the man, finally leaving him dead. Thinking I had two new powerful servants, I moved towards the serpents. However, they began attacking each other. They began consuming one another in an ongoing circle. Completing the devouring of each other, they burst into flames, consumed, becoming nothing more than ash. Had I unleashed something upon the world? No, I don't think so. Nothing tells me of what this means. However, I feel deep inside this was not a good omen of things to come. Of course, the sudden and brutal outbreak of a blood feud amongst two prominent families in a small community would not go unnoticed. In fact, apparently my nighttime meddlings amongst the two families had been spotted, and already feeling the insidious grip of the two ill-omened snakes, I figured it was time to move on. Time to progress to something different. I'd exhausted the resources available in this dying and corrupted land. I needed information that I could not get access to what little knowledge remains from the ancient world. I also needed to divine the meaning behind the two serpents devouring each other. What did this ill omen mean? It was time to head to the south, into the more populated lands that still remain in this world, lands I had avoided due to their associations with him. 
However, despite the prevalence of the corrupted clergy, a few powerful city-states still remain dotted along the shores. Having avoided the majority of the destruction of the ancient world, these grand cities saw a decline, but not a collapse. These grand cities still had, at least, some connection to the more enlightened ancient past. Getting from these western corrupted woodlands to the scattered city-states lying upon the southern coastlands, I would either have to pass through the Red Waste yet again, and either through the small kingdom I was born in, thus bringing myself closer to the seat of my brother's power, or I could negotiate passage on one of the few brave and adventurous merchant vessels plying their trade along the choppy and monster-infested waters, bringing myself into the city-states. Perhaps against better judgment, I chose what I considered at the time to be the easy way. I simply extorted my way onto one of these merchant vessels promising riches beyond their wildest dreams for my successful delivery into the city-states. The corrupting influences of this region did the rest of the work for me. Most men are so easily swayed by greed, and the fact I barely had two coppers to rub together mattered little at the time. And so, my journey took me across the dark, stormy waters. And although the hardships and stories of pathetic heroism performed by the crew on the journey would be worthy of many a great story, I cared not for them. I stayed below deck, poring over my notes, poring over my tome, by flickering candlelight and cursing the ever-tossing and turning of the choppy sea. I began to feel something change within me. Something was unlocking. Perhaps the twin serpents with their ill omen was just a false portent. Perhaps that nagging oppression of the western woodlands was merely my own imagination running wild. And when I murdered the crew of the vessel as we drifted into one of the harbors of the city-states, and sent them down to the bottom of the sea with stones around their feet. I was feeling good. I was feeling as though things were looking up. However, as I established myself in the city, bribing and cheating and murdering my way to where I needed to go, the serpents came back to bite me. My future was tied up with the Nine of Hearts, which is an ill omen indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of One Guy, One Roll, as we once again delved into the twisted and evil mind of Varak, the not yet imperishable. I hope you guys are enjoying this mini-series of Lichdom. I'm probably going to continue this one, try and see it through. We really just are not having great luck with getting good cards drawn. The card at the very end, while not a king, which is about the worst you can draw, is still going to provide some difficulties for us. Either way, the storytelling this game is really fun, and I hope y'all are enjoying following along the various twists and unexpected happenings as much as I am. 
This series has gone on a little longer than I expected it to, but I really had no idea when I got into it initially just how long it was actually going to take, and I'm okay with that. I think I probably embellish each of the cards a little more than I probably need to or realistically should, but that style of storytelling along with world building is something I find very interesting. So if I didn't make it clear earlier in the episode, when I drew the Eight of Diamonds, when you draw an adversary, you roll 2d6 and compare it to the number on the card. I rolled an eight, and if you tie, you still win. Therefore, we were able to restore one of our resolve back to our new maximum of three, and it ended up being a positive adversarial encounter. This one we just drew the Nine of Hearts is going to be potentially a lot more difficult. Anyways, as always, this whole podcast would not be possible without the generous support of my patrons over on patreon.com slash one guy one role. If you're interested in providing some monetary support for the podcast to help with the costs of hosting, updating my equipment, and other things like that, please do head on over there and check it out. And as always, a huge thank you to Master JL, Journeyman James, Journeyman Matt, Journeyman Nick, and Apprentice Jesse. Thank you guys so much. Your generous support makes this possible. And of course, to everybody else, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to the One Guy, One Roll podcast. As always, I've been your host, player, and GM Hero Cities, signing off. Have a great day and stay safe out there, y'all.